Zechariah chapter 10, and our study is verses 5 to 11. We'll read at verse 1. 5 to 11 will highlight the sovereign grace of God, God's sovereign grace. Verse 1, ask rain from the Lord at the time of the spring rain, the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain, vegetation in the field to each man. For the teraphim speak iniquity, and the diviners see lying visions and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted because there is no shepherd. My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the male goats. For the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic horse in battle. From them will come the cornerstone, from them the tent peg, from them the bow of battle, from them every ruler, all of them together. And they will be as mighty men, treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in battle, and they will fight, for the Lord will be with them. And the riders on horses will be put to shame. And I shall strengthen the house of Judah, and I shall save the house of Joseph, and I shall bring them back because I have had compassion on them, and they will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. And Ephraim will be like a mighty man, and their heart will be glad as if from wine. Indeed, their children will see it and be glad. Their heart will rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them to gather them together, for I have redeemed them. And they will be as numerous as they were before. When I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries. And they, with their children, will live and come back. I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them. And he will pass through the sea of distress and strike the waves in the sea so that all the depths of the Nile will dry up, and the pride of Assyria will be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt will depart. And I shall strengthen them in the Lord, and in his name they will walk, declares the Lord. Amen. In our previous study of verses 1 to 4, we saw that God appeals to the people to ask him for both their spiritual and physical blessings, instead of consulting the teraphim, or idols, household idols, and diviners, because they are only promoting that which is satanic and false, nothing true, nothing reliable, nothing salvific. And God also, he denounces the false shepherds, many false shepherds, and therefore in verse 2 he says, there is no shepherd meaning there is no true shepherd. There are very, very, very few true shepherds. Therefore, God's anger is against all of the false shepherds in verse 3. And as a result of that, he will bring about redemption. He will bring about the redemption of his people called his flock. And then he will make his flock like a majestic horse in battle. His flock will be that way. And why so? Why will the flock of God be victorious and valiant? Because of verse 4. 
because of Christ. We remember last time we said that Christ is the cornerstone, tent peg, bow of battle, and the supreme ruler of God for the people of God. That is Christ himself in verse 4. Then if Christ intercedes for us and Christ redeems us, what can we anticipate? We can anticipate victory. And this victory is not a mere and physical victory. This victory that he's describing in verses 5 to 11 is an eternal victory, a victory of salvation, a victory that lasts forever and ever. That's in verses 5 to 11. And we shall see that it is the Lord himself who makes it possible. Apart from the sovereignty of God and apart from the grace of God, this will not happen. It does not happen because of human will, human goodwill or free will. It doesn't happen because of human involvement. We, the remnant, his flock, are benefited by his sovereign grace. We will see many times in verses 5 to 11 that it is God who is the actor and he is the main actor. He is the main cause of our salvation. Not us, but him. Well, what does he make us to be? And how does he deliver us? Verse 5 says, And they will be as mighty men. He will make us mighty soldiers. He means soldiers, warriors, victorious and valiant warriors. He's going to make us like that, treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in battle. Just as victorious soldiers conquer and have great joy in conquering their enemies who are out to get them, yet the victorious ones have defeated their enemies. And so we shall tread down our enemies, and we will fight, he says, and they will fight. We will fight the good fight of faith. We will put on the full armor of God that we may be able to withstand the fiery missiles of the evil one. Then the reason, verse 5, for the Lord will be with them. The reason isn't because there's something innately good in us, innately wise in us, innately powerful in us. There's nothing like that. The reason we are going to be mighty and tread down and be able to fight victoriously has to do with the Lord. The Lord will be with them. Jonah 2, 9. For salvation is of the Lord. 1 John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. And when he does so, we will be victorious. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. We will have the victory. Further, he describes his victory in verse 5 as the riders on horses will be put to shame. The riders on the horses put to shame. This is making an allusion to the Exodus in Exodus chapter 15. In fact, this imagery is doing so in verse 5. It's echoing the various imageries in Exodus 15, 1 to 21, which is known as the Song of Moses and Israel. 
after they passed through the Red Sea and then saw the Egyptian enemies, the army of the Egyptians and Pharaoh, drown in the sea behind them, this song was composed. And they sang this song. Notice, we'll read verses 1 to 3. One, well, let's read, yes, one, two, three. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang the song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. The God of my father, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. It is this way at the beginning, and it also ends this way in terms of what Miriam and the other daughters of Israel did in their dance. Look, look what they sing. 1521. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. This is the foretaste of victory that Israel experienced after they departed Egypt. But our eternal experience is also described this way, in which we tread down and have victory over our enemies. Verse 6, having said, for the Lord will be with them. Now, notice all of these verbs in verses 6 to 12. Let's highlight who is involved. Who is the one that makes it all possible? Verse 6, I shall strengthen. I shall save. I shall bring them back because I have had compassion on them, though I had rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Verse 7, their heart will rejoice in the Lord. Verse 8, I will whistle for them to gather them together, for I have redeemed them. Verse 9, when I scatter them, verse 10, I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon. Verse 11, who is going before them, just as the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire did for Israel through the sea, and throughout the desert. Verse 11, He, the Lord, will pass through the sea of distress and strike the waves in the sea so that all the depths of the Nile will dry up and the pride of Assyria will be brought low and the scepter of Egypt will depart. And finally, verse 12, I shall strengthen them in the Lord and in His name they will walk, declares the Lord. It's unmistakable that God is taking the credit. If we take the credit for our salvation, then we have something to boast about, but not before God, so it's useless. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of faith? No, but by a law. Uh, sorry, of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we have already uh, charged that no one is justified by works of the law. That's Romans 3:27. Same here. Zechariah is preaching the same message. He's preaching the sovereignty of God 
in predestination. He's preaching the depravity of man in verses 1 to 4, total depravity of man. And then he's preaching limited atonement if we consider for whose sake Christ comes into the world, verse 4. For whose sake does he come into the world? He's coming into the world in verse 4. The cornerstone will come, correct? But for whose purpose? Verse 3. Because it's for his flock, the house of Judah. His flock. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, 11 to 18. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The sheep of his hand. And then we will see irresistible grace here also. Because when God whistles and God gathers, when God brings back, He does it successfully. God does it successfully, which means it's irresistible. And then also perseverance is here in that we're talking about eternal salvation. We're not talking about merely that exiles will return to the land of their ancestors. We're not talking about that. We're talking about eternal salvation. And if it's eternal salvation, what God grants by grace will last forever. It will be permanent so that no one can harass and no one can harangue and no one can do anything to harm us evermore. That's what he's describing. So it's perseverance of the saints. Verse 6. And I shall strengthen the house of Judah, and I shall save the house of Joseph, and I shall bring them back, because I have had compassion on them, and they will be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. He speaks of strengthening and saving Judah and Joseph. The two major kingdoms are summarized here as Judah, the southern kingdom, and Joseph, the northern kingdom, because two of the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, inherited territory in the north, and they were among the biggest of the tribes and most populous of the tribes. But in this case, he's not talking about the physical tribes. He's not talking about them as tribes or individuals. He's talking about the redeemed Judah and the redeemed Joseph. Because he says there, I shall save the house of Joseph. He's talking about salvation. And therefore, he's using these terms, which often are literal in reference to physical Judah and Joseph. But in this context, he's referring to spiritual Judah and spiritual Joseph, which means a remnant among the physical will be saved and become spiritual. For they are not all Israel because they are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's offspring. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Correct? Romans 9, 6 to 9 speaks of that. Same here. He will bring them back. I shall bring them back. To bring back or to make someone return, like in verse 10, is not talking geographically. 
It's talking spiritually by using the geographical. It's using the geographical verb to bring back in verse 6 and also in verse 10 to speak of the spiritual return of the people. And spiritual return refers to repentance. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. 1 Peter 2, 25. 1 Peter 2, 25. They were straying like sheep, as he described in verses 1 to 4, but the remnant he saved, he made them return to the shepherd and guardian of their souls. And why so? Because God has chosen to have compassion on them. And we remember that God has mercy on whom he desires, and he has compassion on whom he desires. Exodus thirty-three nineteen, and it's quoted in Romans 9, 14 to 18. God has compassion on whomever he wants, and he chooses to do so to the remnant. And then the remnant in verse 6 their experience will be as though I had not rejected them. This is the amazing part of redemption, that when we are redeemed, He makes us to experience a kind of redemption that causes us to forget the past. We'll see this in two places. The first one is Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54 4 to 8. Isaiah 54, verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame, neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. He says that he forsook them for a moment. He had an outburst of anger, but with everlasting kindness, loving kindness, I will have compassion on you. Verses 7 and 8. Well, if it's everlasting, then certainly... All of the sins of the past will be nothing compared to eternity. This is similarly expressed in Romans 5. Romans 5, 12 to 21. Romans 5, 12 to 21. In 12 to 14, he describes the fact that all of us sinned when Adam committed his first sin. We all sinned when Adam sinned. 
But notice how he describes the grace of God that overcomes Adam's sin. Romans 5.15, 5.15-21. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then... As through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the amazing grace of God that supersedes and takes over and obliterates the sins of the past. And he says that this is for us, for I am the Lord their God. And I will answer them. I am the Lord their God. Since he is their God by redemption, he will do this for us. Also, he is the one who answers our prayers. What is the prayer that he is answering? Is it a sinful prayer or is it a salvific prayer? Salvific prayer, correct? It's like the tax collector in Luke 18, 9 to 14, who says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's like the, the apostle says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, then God will answer us. He will answer our prayers for His mercy and grace. Verse 7, And Ephraim will be like a mighty man, and their heart will be glad as if from wine. Indeed, their children will see it and be glad. Their heart will rejoice in the Lord. Ephraim, as we said, it was the most populous tribe of the sons of Joseph in verse 6, and therefore becomes also a term of endearment and a synonym for God's redeemed people. We saw this once before, for example, in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verse 9. Jeremiah 31, verse 9. Among the sons of Joseph, Manasseh was the firstborn. Right? Manasseh and Ephraim 
This is in Genesis chapter 48. But notice here, speaking of the remnant that God saves, we'll read 31, Jeremiah 31, 7 to 9. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chiefs of the nations, proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country and I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth and among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and she who is in labor with child together. A great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come and by supplication I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of waters on a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim is God's firstborn. He doesn't mean that he made Ephraim a firstborn son or that that's how he was born, but he is treating Ephraim like a dear firstborn son. And that means in terms of redemption. Verse 7, save your people, the remnant of Israel. And he is the one that brings and gathers, verse 8, He's the one that leads and makes them walk by streams of water in verse 9. Because he is a father, a redemptive father to Israel. And Ephraim is my firstborn. Here too, Zechariah picks up on that and says that Ephraim, his redeemed people, which includes you and me, will be like a mighty man. Back to the imagery of a soldier. And then what happens when one drinks wine? If you have a sufficient amount, it makes your heart glad. Judges 9.13 And wine which cheers man's heart. Psalm 104 verse 15 Wine which makes man's heart glad. And even Psalm 23 verse 5 My cup overflows in the great banquet to come. And in Isaiah 25, 6 to 12, he says, The Lord of hosts has prepared a lavish banquet, a banquet of choice meat and aged wine. That's at the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's describing the kind of joy we will have as if we were drinking wine. Now, he's not talking about drunkenness and unlawful use of wine. He's talking about the lawful use of it in a proper sense. That's what he's speaking of here. And who will benefit? Their children. Indeed, their children will see it and be glad. Their heart will rejoice in the Lord. What is one of the purposes of the gospel? One of the purposes of the gospel is expressed... In the book of Luke, chapter 1, the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Luke 1, 16. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
John's ministry in verse 16 is to turn back many. Turn back many. That's, again, that's bring back or cause to return to repent. Because John preached repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He will do so. But when fathers and children repent, what happens in verse 17? To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. So that fathers and children become one harmonious people of God prepared for the Lord. Same with Zechariah. Zechariah is preaching it. And actually, even in Luke, Luke is quoting from Malachi 4, verse 6. Malachi 4, 6. And what happens? Their heart will rejoice in the Lord. When redemption is mutually experienced, then people rejoice together. They rejoice in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah 8.10 That joy, because it's based on faith and hope, it will be a motivation and an encouragement to press on in spite of the troubles of life. Verse 8 I will whistle for them together to gather them together for I have redeemed them, and they will be as numerous as they were before. God says He's going to whistle for them to gather them together. When He whistles for them, they will immediately hear the whistle and understand and desire to gather together. Such as when, you, when the people of Israel would blow the trumpet, when they would blow it once or twice or with the alarm, whatever way the people knew how to respond. In this way, when God whistles, this would be like the secret call of God, the call of the Holy Spirit, who calls us, who whistles, whistles for us, and we know what to do. We know immediately we ought to confess and forsake our sin, and cling to Christ. They will do this because I have redeemed them. Because redemption has occurred, they will understand redemption, and therefore they will gather in the name of the Lord, to the Lord. And when they gather, they will be as numerous as they were before. He's making allusion to the fact that God promised to Abraham in Genesis 15, 5, that his descendants would be like the stars of heaven. And in 22, 17, like the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore. He's making reference to that fact. And that came to fruition in two ways. Abraham's descendants became physically numerous. Exodus 1, 7 They became mightier than the Egyptians, and the Egyptians were intimidated by it and made them slaves, Exodus 1.7. And in reference to being like the stars and like the sand, Deuteronomy 1.10 and 10.22 makes reference to this promise that God has fulfilled 
the physical promise in the days of Moses. This is also true in the days of Solomon. In 1 Kings 3.8 and 4.20, and 4.20, they became as numerous as the sand on the seashore. But is he only talking about that? No. He's talking about it in the eternal redemptive sense. That's the way in which he means it. He says, as they were before, before they were that way physically, but in terms of salvation, they will be this way. As it says in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. Revelation 7, 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He means that the number of the redeemed will be numerous and innumerable like the sand and the stars. Verse 9. When I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries, and they with their children will live and come back. God had threatened them because of their sins that he would disperse them. He would scatter them. He would kill and massacre many of them by the hands of foreign enemies, which he did. However, he also said that if in that foreign land you repent or you remember me, then I will redeem you. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, 12 to 14. Jeremiah 29, Verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart and I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. They are in Babylon and he or they are about to go to Babylon and he is telling them that they must repent when they remember the Lord in Babylon. Also, Ezekiel chapter six, Ezekiel six, eight to ten, Ezekiel chapter six, verse eight. However, I shall leave a remnant for you will have those who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered among the countries. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive. How I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts, which turned away from me, and by their eyes, which played the harlot after their idols. And they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations." Then they will know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would afflict, inflict this disaster on them. He's going to leave a remnant 
in these foreign nations and these who are among the remnant will loathe themselves. That is, like Jesus says, if any man wants to come after me, he has to hate himself and others. So they first loathe themselves and are redeemed by God. That's the sense in which they remember me in far countries. And I will restore them and their children. Verse 10, Zechariah 10.10. I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them. These are two nations, one in the distant past and more recent past is Assyria. In the distant past, in the days of Jacob, Joseph, and Moses, they were enslaved in Egypt and God delivered them there. In the more recent past, at least recent to Zechariah's time, about 200 years before Zechariah's time, Assyria conquered them and destroyed them, exiled them, left a few in the land, and scattered the rest of the people that they didn't kill throughout their empire. But God says that among them I will bring and bring back to Gilead and Lebanon. Now, Gilead on the eastern side of the Jordan was a fertile territory. And Lebanon also on the western side by the Mediterranean Sea, that was also fertile (coughs) territory. He's speaking here figuratively of the fact that he's going to give them plenty. It would be akin to him saying, you were in the desert, but now you will be in the Garden of Eden. That's what he's uh, communicating here. Until no room can be found for them. You will be so populous that the land cannot contain you. Notice here in Isaiah 54, 1 to 3. Isaiah 54, 1 to 3. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwelling, spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations, and they will resettle the desolate cities. He describes here, and we know that this verse, verse 1, verse 1 is quoted in Galatians 4.27, which means he's speaking of the spiritual offspring of Abraham and Sarah. Not the literal offspring, but the spiritual offspring of Abraham and Sarah, according to the interpretation of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4, 21 to 31. And the spiritual offspring will be so numerous that there's not going to be enough place for them to reside. There's going to be too many people, lots of people who are redeemed. He's describing it as though it is overpopulation. That's how abundantly God will save 
the people, his redeemed. He leads the way and destroys the enemy. Zechariah 10, 11. He will pass through the sea of distress. Your Bible may say they will pass through. It is true that he and they pass through. But who is the leader that led them through? Remember in the book of Exodus, when they crossed the sea, when they crossed the Red Sea, who led them to cross? Who went first? The Lord did. Because it says in Exodus chapter, we'll read first Exodus thirteen twenty one. Exodus, actually, we'll read 13.18. Exodus 13.18. This is in the narrative of their escape from Egypt before they reach the Red Sea. 13.18. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. God led the people. Verse 18. Verse 21. And the Lord was going before them, in front of them, in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. Also 14, chapter 14, 19, 14, 19 of Exodus. And the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Now, why was that the case? Because the Egyptians were approaching and it was a barrier between Israel and the Egyptians. Then verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so the waters were divided. Verse 24, 24, And it came about at the morning watch that the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. And 25, And he caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. This is the same way in which God's declaring in the book of Zechariah that he goes before his people to grant them safe access, safe passage to their final destination. And God is so powerful that he can dry up the Nile, which is unheard of, and he can destroy the pride, the powerful pride of Assyria, which is also unheard of. And the scepter of Egypt will depart. Their scepter will be meaningless and powerless before the Lord when he goes before and destroys our enemies. Lastly, we have come to verse 12. And I shall strengthen them in the Lord, and in his name they will walk, declares the Lord. God strengthens. And God is the one, therefore, who causes us to walk 
in His ways. He strengthens us to walk in His ways in His name. For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God not only strengthens us, but He makes us walk the way He wants us to walk. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. Ezekiel 36, 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. If God is the one who strengthens us to walk in his statutes and to be careful to observe his word, will he not be successful? Certainly. We should also notice in verse 12, we have at least two, if not three, persons of the Trinity. Here, in uh, not verse 2, verse 12. In verse 12, we have at least two, if not three, persons of the Trinity. It says, I, and who is the I? The Lord. I shall strengthen them in the Lord. Well, why doesn't the Lord just say, I shall strengthen them in me? Further, and in his name, third person reference again, even though he started with the first person, I, the Lord and His name are third-person references. Why is the Lord, though speaking to the remnant, speaking of the Lord in the third person? His name. They will walk in His name. Moreover, God is speaking and He says, declares the Lord. No mistaking who's speaking in verse 12. Actually, going all the way back, all the way back to verse, at least verse 3. The Lord speaks. At least all the way back to verse 3. So, this may be, I the Father shall strengthen them in the Lord the Son. And in His name, in the name of the Son, they will walk declares the Lord, the Father. Probably two persons of the Trinity there, the Father and the Son. Actually, on that note, in the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Old Testament of Zechariah, and that is called the Targum, the Targum, Aramaic Targum, T-A-R-G-U-M. The Aramaic Targum in verse 12 says, I shall strengthen them in the word of the Lord. And the word in the Targum is not the written or spoken word. It is the personal word, the eternal word. That's how the Targum means it. And that's how John uses it in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The eternal word, the personal eternal word. That's in verse 12. And also in verse 7, 
their heart will rejoice in the word of the Lord, according to the Targum. And we should also remember that in verse 4, the Targum says that the ruler of verse 4 is the Messiah, the Christ. Therefore, they have taken it messianically. This passage, they have taken it to be messianic way before we ever lived because the Targums were composed or uh, known to be in existence before the time of the apostles. The Aramaic was before the time of the apostles. The manuscripts we have are after the times of the apostles, but the need for Aramaic was before the time of the apostles, in the time, at least in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah. And just a brief note on that. If you want to see what we're speaking of, turn to the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah. And we'll read Nehemiah 8.8. Nehemiah 8.8. Ezra and Nehemiah, they live in the Persian period, during the Persian Empire. Before them was the Assyrian Empire. One of the major diplomatic languages of the Assyrians was Aramaic. One of them. And then when the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians, one of their diplomatic kingdom languages was Aramaic. And then when the Persians conquered the Babylonians, one of their also governmental diplomatic languages wherein they published many documents so that the peoples in the empires, in the all three empires could read them, was Aramaic. And so it should be no surprise that Ezra and Nehemiah knew Aramaic. And notice... They're speaking in one language and translating in another language. Or they are reading from one language and then translating and speaking in another language. That's a better way to phrase it. Verse 8, 8, 8, Nehemiah 8, 8. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. When it says translating to give the sense, they're reading from the Hebrew Old Testament but they have to translate into Aramaic because these are exiles, returnees, who have been living in these empires where they learned Aramaic, Persian, Babylonian, and Assyrian, depending on the period. They learned these languages and they don't have familiarity with their ancient Hebrew language, except some of the scholars did, some of the scribes, like Ezra. They knew Hebrew, but many of the people, the common people, did not. So they needed it translated. And that is the value. We make reference sometimes to Jewish sources. We're not doing it because it is the authoritative word of God. We're doing it as a matter of corroboration. We're doing it as a matter of evidence. What we're doing is buttressing our own argument that when we see the Christ here in this passage... We're not fanatics. We're not giddy fanatics making up things as we go. We're not cultists. We're speaking what is historically true and biblically accurate. That's what we're speaking. And this is the gospel, the gospel of Christ. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.